video on social media showing a man being detained by an ICE agent in front of a fast food restaurant sends a chilling message. I just want to thank President Agent Orange for perpetuating all of the evil that you've been perpetuating throughout the United States. We can really use this kind of excitement at a pipeline protest, guys. Hashtag no dapple. I said we will get the criminals out, the drug lords, the gang members. We're getting them out. It's time to make America great again. Join the movement. The Neil A. Caruso Show Podcast. Time to dream big. Informative, insightful, and valiant leadership. Telling it the way it is to make a difference. All right, welcome. Monday podcast. Uh, and welcome to the Neil A. Caruso Show podcast. Following, uh, we're on our second week of the podcast. Uh, following the live stream show yesterday, I hope you watched it. We had a, a very interesting show talking about uh, immigration with uh, former immigration agent Michael Cutler, and we got into um, education, the college campus craziness. That we will continue that conversation. Um, in fact, we're going to talk a lot about education on this podcast today. Um, Daniel Blanchard, who was uh, in a uh, couple of sound bites in that feature, educating our kids in our um, third segment uh, yesterday in the live streaming show. Um, Daniel Blanchard, an inner city school teacher in Connecticut, is actually also a um, U.S. veteran, uh, served uh, in both the Army and the Air Force, which is interesting, so a double U.S. veteran. And we talked to him for, well, about 56 minutes is uh, is what the interview totaled to. So um, at last 56 minutes. But let me tell you, though, it's going to be a long podcast today. It's worth it. And I'll tell you why. Because um, if you are interested about substance, because everyone always says, like voters always say, you know, I want to know what candidates stand for. I want to know um, uh, the substance. I, I don't care about the headline news. Well, if you really mean that, and if you are not just saying that because you know it's like the politically correct thing to say, if you really mean that, then you stay and you tune in for this entire podcast because this last 56 minutes, we talked about everything from school choice, Betsy DeVos, the new education secretary, and you got to remember this guy, Daniel Blanchard, you know, yes, I am a conservative. I don't hide that. This guest is not. He's a Democrat. He's a um, d works for a union. He represents a union, American Federation of Teachers in Connecticut, and he talks about accountability in the classroom, both teachers and students. And we talk about charter schools. Why are charter schools effective in some cases? Why aren't they? What is the argument that the unions have? We get into all of this, and if you have kids – or if you are someone who is interested in education, you need to know what's going on in these schools because we talked about indoctrination on campuses yesterday, but today we talked about what's going on in the classroom that's the substance, that's the concrete work. And, you know, when you see the stats that we're 25th in math and science and we're behind all of these countries, and it's pathetic to say the least, um, we need to know 
how we can change things. And it's only going to take level-headed, common-sense solutions to actually change. And it's going to take both sides to come together. Isn't that some sort of, like, uh, back from the future? I mean, both sides coming together since when? We have all this gridlock. No one talks to each other. You know, I mean, it's like if you're a conservative, you're, you know, you know what? And if you're a Democrat, you're, you know, you're a snowflake. We don't come together anymore. And we need to. We need to have this open discussion and just come to the middle. Um, you know, from I think the media has a, a lot to do with that um, because, you know, since uh, C-SPAN came into play, which I forget when C-SPAN, in fact, maybe I do a quick search here. Just Google it. Um, when C-SPAN came into play uh, and went on the air for the first time, then you're seeing all the congressional hearings um, on Capitol Hill. And because of that, uh, March 19th, 1979 was C-SPAN's debut. Because everything is out there, voters and uh, constituents see that their elected official is not voting uh, for what they stand for, which could be one way or the other. And I think the partisanship really got divided then in about 79 in the 80s and got worse recently. But that really happened because now if there's compromise – the elected officials get voted out. Remember, it's all about votes. And if Elizabeth Warren doesn't get up there and say, well, you know, uh, Jeff Sessions is an abomination and all this nonsense, if she doesn't say that, her constituents in liberal Massachusetts are not going to like it very much and will vote her out. Pocahontas! So um, it's, it's so divided, and there's so much um, bickering on both sides, really. But all right, so let's talk about some substance. You have education later on. Let me tell you some White House news today that you should know. Um, well, out this evening, the latest story is that President Trump has um, put sanctions on the Venezuelan vice president. And so the Associated Press, I believe, reported this first. So let me tell you what they had reported because um, it seems like President Trump is making an effort uh, to hamper down on the countries who send their criminals to, our, to the United States. And so what the news was is that um, Trump's administration will sanction Venezuela's vice president, accuses him of being a drug kingpin. Now, let's talk about Venezuela. Venezuela – it's a socialist country, and over the summer there were videos that emerged. And depending on which source you saw it, um, you may not have you may have overlooked it, but there were videos and pictures of children and parents and adults, everybody in Venezuela, a socialist regime there, sifting through garbage to get food. They were going through the trash. While the government in Venezuela actually benefits off of these people, and they're living in you know fancy Shangri-La, okay, almost as nice as Mar-a-Lago. We know nothing's as nice as Mar-a-Lago, but they are living in the best conditions with the best food. The government is taking advantage of its people. And why do you think I and many others were so against burning? 
Bernie Sanders because socialism does not work. And when you see people and kids and parents, adults, sifting through garbage to eat food because everything that they own is handed over to the government, they're corrupt. And President Trump is putting sanctions on them according to the Associated Press report. Now, also breaking tonight, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Treasury um, is uh, set to uh, freeze the assets of uh, Venezuela's VP. So both um, the Wall Street Journal and AP reported this, alleging that uh, Venezuelan vice president aided drug traffickers and terrorists. And if that's true, then he has every right to sanction them. Now people are saying, well, what about sanctioning Russia? Putin's the killer. Well, yeah, we have had instances where journalists have been killed in Russia. But not under the Trump administration yet. And if we can work with a nation to fight ISIS, we need to do so. We need to work. You know, you always hear, well, we need to, we need to forge relationships. Okay, so let's try to do that. And if that doesn't work, then we'll sanction the hell out of them. And what you have to remember is President Trump knows more than we know. He gets a daily intelligence briefing. He is the president. And so you have to trust that he is doing what is in the best interest of the nation. The other big news today out of the White House is that President Trump met with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And basically what came out of that, you're going to see clips. We're going to play really the full thing for you for context-wise. They met to talk about women in the workforce. Ivanka Trump was there because she is a big promoter of women who work as our brand and allowing women, moms, to get to work and support their kids. And she's a, and she's a hard worker herself, and so she was there. There's a controversy of that. Oh, my God, Ivanka Trump is in the White House. Yeah, she is, and she also gave up all of her business to serve the country in some regard. I don't know what the big deal is. Uh, but that was one piece of it. Women in the workforce. No one has elevated more people in the private sector, arguably, than Mr. Trump. It's a fact. He has women on um, the board. He has elevated people to his Trump organization. Um, so you had that was part of the Justin Trudeau meeting. They also talked about national security, fighting ISIS. They're a partner in that. And you'll hear them talk about how we've had Americans and Canadians fight together historically. Um, so that was discussed. Now, the, the ideological difference here between Trudeau and Trump is drastic because Trudeau is more of a um, socialist, really, and uh, he's a left-leaning guy. And obviously the single-payer health care is different, though, much less people to support. But the weight lines – and let me tell you this. This is why single-payer health care does not work because the Canadian weight lines, if you break a leg, it will take three months for you to get surgery. Think about that. Three months. You'll wait forever. It's like the VA for everybody in health care. And we're going to talk about veterans on Thursday. I have a veteran on the show, a different veteran, um, Jeffrey McQueen from Veterans Health Alliance of Long Island, New York, met with him today. 
and he will be on the show on Thursday to talk about supporting our veterans and talk about health care as well and the VA. But that's how it is in Canada. The wait lines are outrageous. Just look it up. And that's why single-payer health care doesn't work. The quality is terrible, and you wait forever. And that's just how it goes. So you have ideological difference here. Um, Trudeau lets in refugees, and so Trump, in this clip I'm going to play you, was asked about the North border. And actually, that was the first question. I'm going to lead you in. Let's give you some context. I'm going to play you uh, about, I guess it's about five minutes worth of President Trump and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada. And this is – you need to hear context. You can't just hear a quick clip, which is what sometimes the media gets wrong. Here is context. And this is everything you need to know about the meeting today from the news conference. And the first question that I have here that I pulled is asked about the north border, whether President Trump thinks that the north border is secure and whether there needs to be some action like he's putting the wall on the southern border. Take a listen. Many, many problems. Uh, when I was campaigning, I said it's not a good situation. Now that I see it, including with our intelligence briefings, we have problems that a lot of people have no idea how bad they are, how serious they are. Not only internationally, but when you come right here. I mean, obviously, North Korea is a big, big problem, and we will deal with that very strongly. Uh, we have problems all over the Middle East. We have problems uh, just about every corner of the globe, no matter where you look. We had a great meeting uh, this weekend with Prime Minister Abe of Japan and got to know each other very, very well. Extended weekend, really. Uh, we were with each other for long periods of time and our staffs and representatives. But on the home front, we have to create borders. We have to let people that can love our country in, and I want to do that. We want to have a big, beautiful, open door, and we want people to come in and come in our country. But we cannot let the wrong people in, and I will not allow that to happen during this administration. And people, the citizens of our country, want that, and that's their attitude, too, I will tell you. We are getting uh, such praise for our stance and it's a stance of common sense. Maybe a certain toughness, but it's really more than toughness. It's a stance of common sense. And we are going to pursue it vigorously. And we don't want to have our country have the kinds of problems that you're witnessing taking place, not only here, but all over the world. We won't stand for it. We won't put up for, with it. We're just not going to let it happen. We're going to give ourselves every bit of chance so that things go well for the United States, and they will go well. Thank you. Canada and the United States have been neighbors a long time, and Canadians and Americans have stood together, worked together uh, at home and around the world. Um, we fought and died together in battlefields in World War I, and World War II, in Korea, in Afghanistan. Um, but there have been times uh, where we have differed in our approaches. Uh, and that's always been done firmly and respectfully. The last thing Canadians expect uh, is uh, for me to come down and uh, lecture another country on how they choose to govern themselves. They're not. My role and our responsibility is to uh, continue to 
govern in such a way that uh, reflects Canadians' approach and uh, be a positive example in the world. So you hear the ideological difference there between Trudeau and Trump, obviously. But what I love about what Trump said was he said that there are problems that we are dealing with that I know of. It's not just limited to Mexico. Obviously, that's a problem. By the way, Rex Tillerson said uh, came out today that he's going to go to Mexico in the next couple of weeks to um, do some diplomacy down there. So that's a, a good news there. But Trump basically said, listen, we need to protect our nation. He's been saying that over and over. I don't know why people don't get that he's the president of the United States, not the president of the globe. And that was a very interesting comment from – um, the former immigration expert yesterday, a uh, former immigration agent, um, he is an immigration expert, uh, that being Michael Cutler, and that full interview is up on NeilAcres.com, and he said this globalism is a problem because you're making the country susceptible to terrorism, and you see it going on in Europe, and that's one of the reasons for Brexit is because open borders foster terrorism and radical Islamic terrorists are coming in through the open borders. So you hear the difference. You hear we're going to protect our homeland, and we are going to make sure that Americans are safe. He said, no terrorism on my watch. Don't you love that, that he wants to make sure that nobody dies on his watch? You should love that about our president. And that Trudeau, obviously, let him in. You know, just, oh, yeah, just walk right in. The problem is, and Cutler told me this. I don't think he said it on the interview yesterday, but another time I chatted with him on the phone, he said that Canada, that they that they don't necessarily um, check everybody at the border, um, that people have come in. So I, I think we should be vigilant. Now, as a border, I don't know. I mean, can we put a wall at the north border? If we could, I'm all for it, but I don't think the geography would allow for it. So what you have to do is make sure – that there is strict extreme vetting on every border. Wouldn't that make sense so that we know who's coming into our country? I mean, c common sense. Trump is saying that lately. Common sense. Um, Grammys last night, uh, just to touch on this, and we'll get to Daniel Blanchard, inner city school teacher, about all the education uh, reforms that we do need and Betsy DeVos taking over. Um, so I'm just reading a story now as, as I'm talking to you. About Meryl Streep. Now, you remember Trump called Meryl Streep overrated after she took aim at him at uh, the Golden Globes, I guess it was. I, I don't even watch these things anymore. I don't want to know. I don't want to see any political nonsense at these – I mean you watch the Grammys. You're watching – you want to hear good music. I don't think anyone watches or I guess what they're wearing. Not that I care. I mean – you know, Ryan Seacrest and his, uh, you know, his Ryan Seacrest collection tuxedo and the, the fancy dress. I don't care, okay? I want to hear good music, but the problem is it gets disrupted by all of this nonsense. And I'll play a clip for you because I, I don't even know what went on. So I'm going to hear it for the first time, but I'm reading this. Meryl Streep apparently said yesterday that I am under attack by Nazi brown shirts since I criticized Trump. She said that she's been set up for an attack by armies of brown shirts. Now, brown shirts, if you don't know, is a colloquial term for the original parliamentary wing of the Nazi party, which helped bring Adolf Hitler to power by intimidating citizens and 
also killing those who spoke out against the government. So I don't know what she's saying here. Is Meryl Streep saying that she's a victim? She makes millions of dollars for showing up and acting, for being somebody else. She gets paid millions of dollars. She should be kissing the ground she walks on. And she's under attack. Or is she calling Trump? I guess she's calling Trump supporters Nazis. Oh, well, how inclusive of you. And, well, before I get on a rant about that, well, why don't you just take a listen for yourself because I don't even know what happened last night. So here you go. to people they're alienating they're really this is dumb marketing because they alienate 50 percent of their audience just by spouting this nonsense people don't want to hear it people tune in out and the grammy's producer apparently said oh we're going to get political because that's what brings ratings no it doesn't it turns 50 percent off and the other 50 percent rants on twitter that's what happens okay uh things last night that i'm just reading today again i purposely did not watch any TV last night, and I was very uh, not present on Twitter uh, frequently last night, so I was not paying attention. Katy Perry appeared in a white pantsuit. I mean, seriously, no one wants to see Katy Perry in a white pantsuit. Let's be honest, okay? And she was wearing an armband with resist because we need to resist our president. I mean, give me a break. Just, you know what? Go to Canada. You'd be better with Justin Trudeau. Trudeau. Whatever his name is, Trudeau. Resist. You know who resisted? Is Betsy DeVos resisted through the protests that she had to go through. If you didn't hear it, I'll play it now. You do not represent anything that they stand for. Keep giving money to senators and buying your way to the position. You should be so proud of yourself. So proud of yourself. Go back! Shame! 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 She's walking to her car at this point. She's she's going to a meeting to meet with kids at a school. Her job. And her car drives away. And that's the audio that we played last week when it happened. I mean, do these people have anything better to do? I mean, don't they have jobs? Oh, probably not. I don't know. Go get a job. Go get a life. I mean, seriously. Absolutely... Just 
protesting. I, I don't get what like we and we talk about this with Daniel Blanchard later on, and we talk about the fact that if you want to do something to help, we need reform, but we need to come together. And these protests are just inappropriate. And Daniel Blanchard con comments on it. And again, he's not ideologue. He isn't. Uh, one last thing I do want to comment on because it was all over the place. This um, actress. Uh, who dressed up uh, – I don't even know what her name is. Um, a lot of people didn't, but she dressed up with a um, Donald Trump dress. It was a Make America Great Again dress, which was pretty cool actually. And it said um, uh, Trump on the back of the, uh, of the dress. And uh, she's, I guess, an actress, singer. Um, and I found it interesting because – I'm, a, I'm against really any political um, speech as far as um, these award shows are concerned because I think people don't – they tune out. They don't want to know her. her name is Joy Villa, by the way. I was looking it up. Her name is Joy Villa. She's a Grammy-considered recording artist, a model, and an actress in New York City and Los Angeles. That's what her Twitter – bio sets uh, Joy Villa and she dressed up and she said I'm a Trump supporter um, she's a minority I don't know what her nationality is um, and the designer that um, designed the dress is actually an immigrant and a pro Trump person and she basically said when she posted the photo I'll tell you what she wrote um, da, 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 go big or go home you can either stand for what you believe or fall for what you don't is what she said um, and she got a lot of negative feedback. But so the question I have, and she was ripped apart in shreds by her cohorts in Hollywood, by the media, by everybody on Twitter. And so my question is that it's so is it okay for political speech in the Grammys and the Academy Awards and all that stuff? Now, I say no, and I don't think Joy – now, listen. Trump support, supports her president, great. I don't think that she should have done it. I don't think that was her platform to do it because if I said that, it, it was fantastic, and I thought it was cool, but if I thought it was fantastic, I'd be a hypocrite. And so where the hypocrisy comes into play, though, is on the left, and I don't think that anyone should have a political position when you're at the Grammys. I think you should respect uh, the music. And you should just kind of be there for Hollywood, right? But the liberal hypocrisy is that basically we could talk politics as long as you agree with us, as long as you have our ideology. Otherwise, you're whatever, you know, insert adjective here. So the hypocrisy that all of these people go up there, all these, I don't even know their names, they go up there. Beyonce, I guess, is the only one that I know. And so it's okay for any celebrity to make political statements as long as it fits the liberal agenda against our president, I guess. Yeah, that, that makes total sense, folks. Total sense. Um, I just don't think that's the time or the place. But it's hypocritical at best, and there's Looney Tune on the face of it. Bunch of Hollywood liberal snowflakes. See, those are the snowflakes, the Hollywood people. All right. When we come back, we get into a lot of substantive issue. By the way, um, Jerry Sandusky's son, adopted son today, is, I guess 
something messed up in that family's brains. Uh, got um, arrested on charges of uh, child molestation. Just a terrible story. I kind of had to mention that because there's a big headline today. and It's disgusting. Just any person that does that, and obviously that's alleged, but it's disgusting. So we told you what you need to know for today, but... Education is the big topic of the day, and Daniel Blanchard, an inner-city school teacher, is up next to talk about all of the uh, inside information that you need to know, what's happening, school choice, the entire thing. That's coming up after the break. We're not going to lose. We're going to start winning again, and we're going to win bigly. Big League winning on the D.L.A. Caruso Show podcast. We have big league content. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. The Neely Caruso Show podcast. I agree with you. There should be no blanket statements made that undermines the um, the uh, authority, you know, of uh, this country, the government of this country, the law enforcement of this country, you know, whoever, the military of this country, anybody. And it's been it's sad, you know. And I think you know, Neil. I talked to you before about this. You know, and it's 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 not just my school. It's across it's across the country. You know, you get these high school kids. The pledge of allegiance comes out in the morning. They they sit in their seats. You know, they don't even stand. And and they, to me, that's a level of disrespect to the flag and the country. Uh, but going back to what we were talking about, being politically correct. You know, you kind of can't really talk about it. You can't make them stand. You just got to leave it alone. You know what I'm saying? So. It, it saddens me. I think that we do need to find some level of respect in this country, and that's for, you know, across the board, especially, you know, law enforcement, for a government. Now joining us is Daniel Blanchard. He's an inner-city school teacher in Connecticut. He has a lot of job titles. He is a W.S. veteran, actually, and he also is an award-winning author, speaker. He does a whole lot. Works for the American Federation of Teachers up there in Connecticut. And he joins us now on the Neil A. Caruso Show podcast. Mr. Blanchard, first of all, thank you for your service. It's been great talking to you, catching up with you lately, and I appreciate you being on the show yesterday and the podcast today. So thanks for taking time. Yeah, you're welcome, Neil. I appreciate you asking me to be on, and it's always a good time talking with you. Sounds good. So we have a lot to talk about because uh, besides, obviously, the entire, and yesterday we talked about um, the political aspect that's going on, uh, in schools around the country, but I want to really focus on um, substance in the classroom today, and that's really where your job comes in. So for those that don't know you, explain what you do, because you do a whole lot just you know in the classroom, outside of the classroom, with teachers, with educators. So explain what you do, and then we'll go from there. All right, now, thank you. Uh, I, I've been pretty lucky. I've had an opportunity to do a lot of different things now. I've actually been a uh, mainstream special education teacher and a um, 
a uh, regular education teacher. So I've been both regular education teacher and special education teacher at all levels. I've been at the high school level, I've been at the middle school level, and I've been at the elementary school level. I've also taught adult education. So I've seen um, you know, a lot of different things and a lot of different uh, public education settings from a lot of different um, ages. Uh, it's been great seeing that stuff. So that's what I do inside. I feel very lucky you know, that I've had that opportunity to be inside the classroom, inside so many different types of classrooms with different types of students. So um, outside the classroom, I do a bunch of things as well. Uh, I'm an uh, elected union officer for um, my school's um, teachers. So I'm the, what, they, what they would call a, a local elected officer for uh, New Britain. I'm the executive secretary, which is really the political secretary. So I spent some time doing that. I'm also involved with some of the state um, union with what's called LPAC, which is the Legislative Action Committee. And I've uh, been lucky enough with uh, some of the books that I've written. Some have been on education. Some have been on leadership. But like I said, some have been on education. So I've been lucky enough to uh, have written some books on education and to have spoken on education as well. The American Federation of Teachers hired me for a speaking tour. I've been going around with them, and that's been a great time. I was the, recently, I was the keynote speaker for the uh, National Honor Society. So, uh, you know, I've had a lot of opportunities to do a lot of different things between being an educator, you know, being an author, and being a speaker. And, uh, gosh, I mean, I've been doing this now for over 20 years, which is, well, the years go by fast now. Yeah, I know. Time, time flies, right? Absolutely. But it's, I've seen a lot of different things, so it's been, it's been pretty cool to see a lot of different things. And, some of my um, future plans. Um, let me back up one second. Sure. I got. I, I'm going on a NEASC visit pretty soon, as a NEASC visiting committee for Rhode Island School, and that's be like the New England colleges, like accreditation for high schools. I've been on a couple of those. I got another one coming up. So uh, well, my future plans, you know, uh, are going to stay pretty much in the educational realm. You know, at, at some point, I'm thinking about maybe getting into the college. Seeing even if it's like part time, like an adjunct professor. Okay. You know, I'm looking into doing more things with politics. Uh, I'm looking to go into administration and do a little bit on that side as like an assistant principal, possibly even a special education director at some point. And, uh, you know, like I said, I'm looking at doing more politics. And I may even at some point, you know, um, I, as I told you before, now applying for this uh, fellowship right. at the State Department of Education for. Uh, uh, you know, national, federal, educational policy. So at some point, I'll probably do a little bit more with policy and maybe even get into some educational law. Wow. You know, it's like a lot of different things <laughs> that, you know, that I've done and a lot of different things I still want to do. So uh, it's, it's pretty exciting. And, uh, you know, thanks for letting me share that, Neil. Of course. I mean, you know, you've actually had a remarkable career because not only did you serve our country for – and tell, tell us where you served, by the way. Okay, yeah, I was uh, in the Army uh, National Guard okay. for six years, based out of here in Connecticut. You know, I went down to my basic training and my advanced individual uh, basic training down in Georgia at Fort Benning, the old Harmony Church, okay. uh, which was, like, really cool to be in those old World War II barracks, you know. Uh, and then, you know, of course, I did, like, a little traveling with them, but a lot of it was out of Connecticut. So I did uh, six years with them, and then I got out for a little bit, and, you know, I kind of got the itch again, so I wanted to kind of get back in. So I jumped back into the Air Force side. Wow. And I tried that out and, uh, you know, and enjoyed that, which uh, which was really interesting. 
Now, because uh, one of the books I wrote, The Storm, one of the characters in it, his name's Granddaddy, he's a former World War II fighter pilot. And anybody who knows about history or knows about the military, you know, there really wasn't an Air Force back then. What it was, it was the Army, like, Air Corps. So it was like you were sort of part of, like, the, you know, like the Air Corps slash of the future Air Force, and you're part of the Army. So uh, I felt kind of, you know, it's, I felt kind of lucky that I was a double fatter of oh. the Army, Air Force, and one of the characters in my book just kind of fits in there, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's that's remarkable. And again, you know, thanks for your service. I was actually uh, at a um, veterans group uh, this afternoon, um, or late this morning, I should say, and, uh, you know, out on Long Island in New York. And, um, you know, again, just what you guys do when you protect our country, and a lot of veterans say, once you go through the basic training, you understand, you, you've served, um, so I appreciate um, all you did there, and you're continuing to serve in education, so let's get into education, because there's a lot right now that's going on, especially politically, and being that you are um, so uh, politically um, inclined, and that's kind of part of your job, is to know what's going on on the federal level, and the state level, um, let me start with uh, Betsy DeVos who has been named the education secretary for President Trump. Some protests uh, the other day, I would play the audio, but the audio isn't um, all that great, but you hear some guys mm-hmm. shouting shame at the uh, at Betsy DeVos. And, you know, it's um, to hear that and knowing that she's giving up her private life to, to serve, whether you agree with her or not, I mean, I don't agree with the way that uh, people handle that with the uh, the protesting, and she issued a nice statement in uh, in retort there. But let's talk about policy with Betsy DeVos. Where do you agree with her, and where do you find disagreement with her? And is there um, is there a way that the unions could find a way to work with her over the next four, maybe eight years? Well, I got to tell you, these are some crazy times going on now, and uh, you know seeing that they blocked the door in Washington, D.C., so she couldn't get in that school, and she had to kind of, well, like, sneak in a side door. I mean, I was just watching I was, like, almost thinking that, they, you know, like, this can't be true. Is this some no. kind of joke? It's really going on. And uh, it turns out that it's really going on. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. I don't know you what know? the purpose is, honestly. I mean, she's going to a school. Do you not want her to go to a school? You would think you would think that you do, but here's where I, I guess it gets complicated, is that there's lots of people out there that are afraid of uh, what she stands for and what she's going to do or what she might do. And to answer your question, I think that the unions and the teachers, they're, they're going to have to find a way to work with her. But, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I would believe, my heart of heart, that, that she means well. You know, she's an accomplished woman. She's, she's done a lot, and I've seen that she's done a lot to, you know, help kids, and she's done it in certain ways. Um, However, you get all Betsy DeVos, they think that she's going to be trying to take away um, public education. Mm-hmm. And they're afraid of that. So I think that that's part of the reason do, why. Do you actually that think that's possible, possible, though? I think it's going to be, I, I think that'd be very, very difficult to do. I mean, uh, you know, public education is so entrenched in this country. It's, you know, a huge tradition, you know, going all the way back, let's see, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, it would be very, very difficult for her to do that. And Neil, I do. You know, we've talked a little bit about this before. I do think that there's a place in this country where all the different places that we can educate children can work together and complement each other and you know, help each other out with a give and take. 
You know, I mean, I know Betsy DeVos, she's big with Catholic schools. I mean, heck, I went to a Catholic middle school. You know, there's nothing wrong with Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. Catholic schools are, you know, she's big on, uh, you know, magnet schools and charter schools. And they've got their place in educating our children. Like, they definitely do have their place. I mean, their AFT, you know, backed the original uh, charter schools and the original uh, mission of charter schools. So there's definitely a place for them. You know, but like I said, where where things get kind of hairy is that people are afraid of what she, what they think she's going to do. You know, she's got these uh, things about, you know, these vouchers and money following the child and, you know, privatizing education. Right. And I think what spooks people the most is, you know, that, that talk of taking public money and, and funneling it to private schools. I think that the public taxpayers and uh, the people that back public education saying, hold on a second, for some reason that doesn't add up, you know, to take public money and send it to private schools. So, you know, they're afraid, like, what's, what's going what's gonna to happen here? Is the public money just going to disappear for our public schools, and then we're going to have, like, a total privatization, you know, with uh, charter schools taking over, you know, maybe magnet schools, uh, having a part there and then what's going to happen is the public school is going to be decimated and you know that scares a lot of people well think of yeah so i don't think uh sorry to interrupt you and we're talking to daniel blanchard today on the podcast uh, inner city school teacher in connecticut i know you have a website too uh granddaddysecrets.com correct Yes, and also DanBlanchard.net. So and DanBlanchard.net. So anyone that wants to check that out, and we'll uh, put that in the description as well. Um, I don't see public schools going away. I just don't think that's feasible. I don't think it's going that way. However, the issue of charter schools that you brought up, I don't. I think that's a good thing. I think charter schools serve um, a good purpose, and that there are some. And you. And I'm going to ask you because you are in an inner city in Connecticut. Um, not one of the inner cities that's uh, talked about all too much, um, like Chicago is, like Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of these kids, they don't have they don't have school choice. Uh, parents want obviously the best for their kids. Um, do you see a, a niche for charter schools, especially in the inner cities? Well, you know, I, I believe that all parents want the best for their children. Now, and I know that you know maybe sometimes people lose sight of that. So they all want what you know what's best for their child, you know, and 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 who knows what that combination is, you know. For maybe some kids, it is the neighborhood public school. For other kids, you know, maybe it is the Catholic school that's uh, on the other uh, other other town, or maybe you know the charter school, magnet school. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the um, there should be some kind of choice. There should be some options involved in this. And I and I would love to see us get to an educational place, and you know, now that we're talking about it, let's throw in, you know, um, uh, the internet, you know, let's throw in digital, you know, what I'm saying, uh, you know, I think there's so many different learning styles, and that kids are built differently. Some kids can go and sit in a classroom, and sit down, you know, for 45 minutes or whatever it is, and be fine. Other kids can't do that, especially young boys. You know, I, I really struggle with the fact that young boys sometimes they feel like are sitting in places that maybe aren't built for them. You know, my son was one of them. You know, my son, he's a, he's a great kid. He's a great student, you know, a great athlete, just a great kid all around. Right. 
Uh, but he had trouble sitting still in class. You know, so like I look, I see, you know, he's getting better now that he's getting older. Yeah. But, you know, when boys are young, boys have a hard time sitting still in class, and the schools aren't exactly built for young boys. You know, they may be built a little bit more for girls uh, than they are for boys. In what way? In that many times, like, you know, and I talk about this a lot, and I've written about it in my books, is that, you know, and I'll use myself for an example. Okay. You know, when I was growing up, you know, I wasn't a big fan of reading. I thought reading was, like, too docile. I thought boys, like, you know, kind of, like, shot hoops or wrestled or played tug-of-war or sure. ran around the playground. Like, we didn't sit still and read books. You know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't, like, manly or macho enough. When I, like, we had to be physically up so It's also it. tedious. Say that again now? It's also tedious, especially, like, for me, I read books mainly autobiographies and mm-hmm. um, nonfiction books that... Um, have a have a message, have a purpose. You want to learn about the person. Like yeah. I've read a number of uh, President Trump's books back when he was running, just as research, and I was I was interested in that. So it was encouraging to read on the train and and read the art of the deal and understand kind of get into his mindset. Um, but I read other books that are nonfiction that have uh, some sort of message. Um, I think it's difficult for um, students and maybe boys is it especially because. You know, I I have a sister who was a big reader um, in high school, but I never really was. Uh, maybe it's because in school they forced you to read fiction books, and that's not always appealing. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've read of schools that you know, give their kids choice. Okay. You know, like, what do you want to read? What, you know, what's your interest? And I think something like that, especially for young boys, is awesome. You know, because, you know, like you said, I mean, the boys don't love to read to begin with, and now you're going to tell them to read something that they have no interest in. So it's like, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to be squirming in their seats, not paying attention, not doing their homework, not reading. But if we can find something that interests our young boys, you know, uh, then we might have a chance of, you know, of winning them over and getting them to like education. Uh, and I think, you know, like my boy loves video games. Right? So I, bet you, I bet you if someone threw like a book about uh, how to build a video game or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, something like that, Adam, five years ago, I bet you he probably would have sat down and, and uh, read that in school and uh, not have been so squirming in his seat, you know, let's say off task. Uh, so, yeah, I think you know, what you're saying is absolutely correct. I think our schools need to do a better job of finding out, you know, what it is that these kids want. You know, what, is, what, is, what, is, what do they like? You know, like I look around, I've been an industry school teacher now for over 20 years, and there's, you know, I find, I, I would like to think that I'm a somewhat interesting teacher and a somewhat fun teacher to be around and all that. Uh, but even even with, with what I do, I mean, there are times I look around my class and I'm like, and I start making mental notes. I'm like, you know, that kid's looking out the window, mm-hmm. that kid's doodling, you know, that kid's not paying attention, that kid hasn't opened his You see yet. everything up there, don't you? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm seeing this stuff, and I'm thinking, you know what? I mean, like, w- w- what is it? What is it about our educational system like that isn't working? You yeah, know, there's like a, there's a tremendous um, short attention span today, and I think yeah. a lot of it has to do with the internet. How? Mm-hmm. I mean, have you changed your style in the classroom to to be more, I don't know, interactive, for lack of a better word? Yeah, we definitely have become more multimedia. You know, our classrooms have been wired, and we got these smart boards, and we got these overheads, and we got, you know, the uh, YouTube, 
and we've got other, you know, like little digital devices. But at the same time, I mean, pretty much almost any thing that we can put in a teacher's hand, you know, system-wide, by the time we're able to figure out the funding and the wiring and, and the training and everything, everything else, you know, by the time we put that in the teacher's hands in any amount of numbers, you know, to the kids, it's kind of like old hat. You know, they're like, boring, and the teachers are like, what do you mean? It's like new technology. Well, yeah, maybe it's new technology to the teachers, but like to the kids, it's really not new technology to the kids. It's like boring. <laughs> you know, so somehow we have to start tapping more into, you know, what the kids are doing. And the kids today, you know, they're digital natives. You know, they, they've grown up with nothing but technology. So I think somehow we need to get more technology savvy, but... At the same time, now we need to be very careful that we don't lose teaching through technology. Because in the end, I mean, if you think about it, technology is just supposed to be something that helps along the lesson. Right. Right? Take over the lesson itself. You know, I mean, if you've got a great teacher, now, you really can just grab a stick and start drawing lines in the sand on the beach or out on the <laughs> public playground or whatever, and a great teacher can teach. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. With like... With, with this stick in her hand and with like a little sand there. Well, I'll right? tell you, I mean, the best teachers that I had weren't all that tech savvy, and I grew up in a generation right before, you know, iPads and all that became acceptable in the classroom. Um, during the days in elementary and, and high school, it was phones away, um, no computers, yep. nothing. It was textbook, pen, pad. And, yeah. you know, I paid attention. I, I always had a good attention span, although, you know, I always did better in subjects that interested me. Like, if I found it interesting or if the teacher was interesting, like I had a chemistry class that chemistry is difficult, but I had a teacher that made it interesting that dedicated a lot of quality time to the classroom. But I don't think all teachers are, you know, put that effort in there. I'm not bashing teachers. I think they're great teachers. And then there are some teachers that don't put all that effort in, and I guess it hurts students. Yeah, you know what they should do, Neil? And this would be funny, it'd be kind of controversial, people might think it's crazy, but this, you know, this would probably be a great idea. Uh, you, you know, you've got, with teachers, you've got the bell curve, and you've got a lot of different personalities of people that come into teaching, this and that, and, uh, you know, a lot of teachers will say, well, it's not my job to entertain the kids, I'm here to teach them. Right. And the bottom line is, was, guess what? You're gonna, if you're going to teach them, you're going to have to entertain them. Uh, at least a little bit, because they're used to being entertained all the time with their, you know, digital devices that are in their pockets and, and everything else that they, they do during this digital modern age. So I, I think, and, and again, this may sound wild and completely off to a lot of people, but, uh, you know, I've said a few times in other interviews I've had, you know, it really would pay for teachers to take, let's say, like one acting class. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so Improv. make that make that part of the teacher's uh, curriculum, the teacher's preparation program. They all got to take one acting uh, class. Interesting. Now, I'm sure a lot of people would say, Dan's freaking lost. He's off his rock. What is he talking about? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But the thing is, I mean, if if you get down that, that body language and that drama, that dramatic flair, that ability to tell a story, that ability to act out what Julius Caesar did, you know, but he's turning around looking at Brutus, saying, Brutus, you too, as he's being stabbed in the back, you know, <laughs> by his friends in the Senate there. You know, if you, if you develop those skills and those abilities, you're going to catch those students' attention, and you're going to sure. be a better teacher. Yes, and yes, you are entertaining them a little bit, 
but that's just the era that we're in now. You got to entertain them a little bit if you're going to teach them, because if you're not entertaining them at all, it's not like before when you know when you were going to school, when I was going to school, you know, where we were able to you know maybe sit there a little better than these kids are, and uh, you know had a little more self-discipline and you know would pay attention, you know, and would have let's say parents that would be um, you know all over our case if uh, if we weren't paying attention and trying our best. You know, today the blame game is kind of shifted, you know, and I'm not trying to get on parents here, mm-hmm. but what I am saying is that the whole dynamics have shifted. So now if you get a kid that's not paying attention in class, you know, many times you get the uh, principal and the parents going to the teacher saying, okay, well, you know, what, what was wrong with your lesson? You know, and instead of telling the kids, sit still and pay attention. Right. <laughs> you know, so, it's things you know the dynamics have shifted well they're paying so i think their thought is well we are and we're talking to daniel blanchard by the way inner city uh school teacher and award-winning speaker and author um that you know i think a lot of people's thinking is well we're paying the school we're paying your salary you work for us and it can't be mm-hmm. my little johnny or you know susie it can't be her fault because you know it's uh she's you know a grade a student and she's you know um they, they hope that their student is or that their child is um, going to amount to great things. It's like the same thing with Little League. You know, the parents get too involved. They get over-involved, and sometimes, yeah. you know, they just need to be taught. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100% there now. And then you've got the other end of that spectrum where you may be in, let's say, the, you know, the middle, the middle, uh, the inner cities there. And um, you, you, you may have parents that didn't have a great experience with their uh, their own public education, and now their kids are going through those schools. So already you've got a parent that's, you know, a little bit on the defense uh, when it comes to what's going on in the classroom, and then you've got a parent saying, hey, well, your kid's not paying attention, your kid's not doing their work, your kid's back-talking me, you know, and then you got the parent going, jeez, you know, <laughs> I remember this, you know, how terrible school was. So you get a little bit of that, too, in there on the other end of that spectrum. So, I mean, it, it's a tough place, and teachers got a tough job. And teachers have to do it today more than they ever had to do because of so many different dynamics that's going on there. And I guess, you know, to go back to your original question, sure. you know, is there room, is there room out there in the educational experience for, uh, you know, more than just public schools? And, and the answer is yes, there is. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and that's DeVos, you know, and she's going to try to bring that forward. And I'm So can you, can you come, can the unions and Betsy DeVos, who is obviously a conservative, can you come together? I mean, I was encouraged when I saw um, some of the labor unions that were invited to the White House that I was actually surprised they never went to the White House before. So they weren't invited when Obama was in office, Bill Clinton, none of that. And so they were present. Uh, President Trump um, invited them, and they came out. So it was it was the best meeting that we've ever had. So I was encouraged by that. And maybe mm-hmm. it's apolitical now. I mean, President Trump's not a typical politician. Is there a way that the Trump administration and um, teachers unions can maybe meet halfway? Can there be compromise in this gridlock? I think there's going to have to be some kind of compromise in this gridlock if we're going to be able to move our children forward. Right. Um, and I think, you know, from watching her hearing and from, you know, a lot of other, like the personal interviews you hear the um, politicians talk about, as well as some other things, uh, it, it seems 
it seems like, you know, Betsy DeVos knows what she knows, but then doesn't know what she doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And some of that, you know, is the public education side, which, you know, which scares people, the special education law, you know, the IDEA, um, Individual with Disabilities Education Act. Uh, the, uh, I don't think she's going to touch that. I could be wrong, but I just don't think she's going to touch public schools because she knows the backlash should be too much, and there uh, too many Americans rely on the public school system. And you know, it's pretty good. I mean, yeah, there could be reforms, and we'll talk about that. But you know, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's going to be a heck of a battle if yeah. she does go after that, the public schools. And I think what she would probably be wiser for her to do is work in some kind of synchronicity or some kind of synergy or pulling everything together and trying to work on all fronts to improve education, you know, and and I'm talking like improving everything everywhere without, you know, trying to take away from anything or trying to minimize anything or destroy it. And I know like the unions, the teachers, some of the politicians are very, very nervous about what she may do. Saying that you know that we're wrong, that she's not going to do that stuff. She is going to pull everybody together, mm-hmm. you know, and make everybody drive forward on a united front with many different options for education, and that she's not going to um, you know take away from the public school system. You know, another thing I recently just heard somebody saying now, which really um, you know really worrying some people, is when they talk about. Uh, you know, her vouchers and the money following the kid, uh, you know, the public funds going toward private schools. Uh, this is what some of the people have told me that I've talked to lately. They've said, hey, listen, you know, I mean, if you really think about the math, and they said, you know, whatever, let's throw out some simple numbers here. So let's just say like $10,000 follows the kid. Okay. So you want to take this kid, you know, make the math easy, take this kid, want to put him in some private school or whatever it is, him or her in a private school. And, and, and let's say the private school's 15000 or 20000 whatever it is, you know, and the 10000 goes, and what's going to happen is that you're going to have a lot of the middle-of-the-road people, the lower-income people, they're going to be like, well, the $10,000 doesn't cover it. Like, I'm still going to come up with another five or maybe another 10 or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be like, well, then I can't do it. My kids got to stay right where they are. So now these people are saying, well, then hold on a second. Is this really, you know, a voucher program that's going to help everybody, or is this really like a hidden tax break for the rich who were just going to, like, probably send their kids to that school anyways, and they were going to reach into their pockets for the fifteen, twenty thousand 20000 anyways, and now they just got the $10,000 break. Uh, and it's really not going to change things for a lot of people who just aren't going to be able to reach in their pocket for the extra five or the extra ten. So I think that Betsy DeVos needs to kind of clarify that and say, you know, how is that going to work if, we, you know, if you've got, let's say, the middle of the road, uh, the lower income, people wanting to go to private schools, you know, how are they going to be able to go if the money that's following them from the public school is not enough to cover the private school? Right. Uh, and again, you know, it goes back to, remember what I said earlier, you know, we all need to, like, be cognizant and not forget that... You know, parents really do want the best for the kids. Certainly. And when they they can't give the best to their kids, you know, they get frustrated. You know, only sometimes they'll be demoralized or, you know, just like the system's fixed. Right. So, so on that note, I want to ask you quickly about 
um, charter schools, and then I want to go to accountability um, on the fact that we're talking about parents wanting the best for their kids. So quickly, because I think there are a lot of people out there that don't even know what charter schools are. Um, you know, I, I, it's always brought up. There are certain things that you know that are brought up in the media that are like you think it's common knowledge, but I know a lot of people that don't know what charter schools are because they aren't. They don't send their kids to charter schools. So explain um, simply what charter schools are, how they help people, and you know quickly the difference between charter schools and and public schools. All right. Yeah. Great. Um, you know, charter schools started off with. AFT back and the American Federation of Teachers back them. They, you know, they thought it was a great idea to have charter schools and charter schools were going to have more flexibility uh, than the uh, public schools. You know, they were going to be more innovative. They weren't going to have to go through all the channels and regulations to get things done. So they were going to be more innovative, more creative. And their original mission was to take, let's say, the reluctant learner or the kid that's having, let's say, maybe some behavioral problems or kids just turned off to school and just isn't, let's say, isn't learning easily. So they were supposed to take these kids and be creative, be innovative, and not supposed to have all these roadblocks in their way that were going to slow them down and stop them from doing these creative, innovative things. And they were supposed to find, like, you know, new ways to teach these kids that the public schools were not using at the time. And then once they found these ways to teach these kids and get these kids to learn, they were supposed to share these uh, techniques and strategies with the public school so the public school could, you know, start, I guess, implementing whichever ones they could. Again, you know, public school is different because there's a lot of rules they follow, a lot of regulations, and things move slow. You know, you've, you've, you, I think you've used the word before in one of our interviews about the bureaucratic right. uh, process. Well, the bureaucratic so charter process. schools are intended oh. to have less bureaucracy. Yes, yes, there's a bureaucracy there, and it's a, slow, it's a slower move, and so the charter schools are supposed to be quicker, faster, you know, easier to get things through and done so that we can see, does this work? And if it doesn't work, boom, move to something else. Does this work? If it doesn't work, boom, we can quickly move to something else. You're just quickly moving, you know, on to another thing, on to another thing. Good, oh, good, this works. But, you know, it might be, you know, it might not be the first, second, third, or fourth thing you tried, but it might be the fifth, sixth, or seventh thing you tried, and now you're starting to find out what works. You know, that would take years and years to run through, maybe decades, to run through a public school, something like that. Sure. So charter schools were very important that you can bring back this learning and this knowledge and these strategies to uh, reach you know, more of our kids and share them. Now, where it's kind of gotten off track a little bit, and some of this is good, but some of this is not so good, is that charter school's mission has slowly changed, and they've gone toward what some people would call like the cherry picking. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of taking the reluctant learner, the low learner, they have taken some of the higher learners and, uh, you know, and they go through and they say, we get good test scores, you know, test scores are good. And people say, you know, well, of course they're good. You've got the higher learners. And, and, and there's some good to that now. Because what's happening is in today's generation, a, a, a lot of kids, you know, they're not very familiar with the bar being held somewhere. And, right. somebody's, and, and somebody's saying, listen, if you want to be in our school, these are the things you're going to have to do. These are the things you're going to have to accomplish if you want to make it into our school and if you want to stay in our school. So I think there's a lot of good to uh, teaching kids that not everywhere is the same. You know, and well, competition is good. Yeah, exactly. And, if, I mean, just if you look at your local high school, 
you know, you got, let's say, like a varsity football team, a JV football team, and a freshman football team. Mm -hmm. You know, the freshman, the most likely, is not going to be able to make it on the varsity football team. No. You know what I'm saying? There, there's standards. So it, it's, it's good. It's good to hold these standards for education, too. All right. You so know, not sports, but education, too. 100%. Um, and I agree. I mean, competition in everything, uh, private sector, and that's why, um, you know, Republicans obviously support um, charter schools as a less bureaucracy and they're in favor of uh, private sector as opposed to big government and the basics of politics. Uh, again, Daniel Blanchard on the program uh, from Connecticut. Um, an inner city school teacher, also a double veteran. Um, and we're going to continue having you on. And I want to talk now about accountability because you're very passionate about accountability and it goes perfect with this conversation. So, one more thing about charter schools. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Accountability. Yeah, I think charter schools, I think Betsy DeVos would benefit if the charter schools kind of broaden their mission. And, and yes, they, you know, they still take the good kids and they still have these standards and this competition and all that. But then start, you know, have like say different schools. Mm -hmm. Let's say take some of the middle of the road kids and have different schools and take some of the lower kids, because that's the argument that the unions have with charter schools. To take our money and you guys are trying to shut us down on that whole thing that you have better test scores than us. And of course you have better test scores. You know, at least some of you are going to have better test scores than some of us because you, you guys are cherry picking. See, that's the whole argument. And, and we, I think we need to get away from that argument, and Betsy DeVos and charter schools can do that, you know, by doing, let's say, different types of charter schools and saying, okay, here it is. We're not trying to cherry pick. You know what I'm saying? We're not trying to make the public schools look bad. We're actually trying to work with you guys, and we're trying to help you. You know what I'm saying? We're trying to educate kids and give them other options to educate kids. I think that something as you know, simple as that could really make, uh, you know, take away that argument and kind of like, you know, maybe have like a little bit of a feeling of like teamwork in this thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now I know, now you want to go toward accountability? Yeah, let's go towards accountability. So what I want to ask you here is um, there, you know, you have really good teachers who don't get rewarded for um, their successful teaching um, in the classroom and for encouraging learning and putting a lot of dedication and hard work into teaching. And then there are teachers who are not held accountable when they're when everyone knows they're not they're not um, effective, we'll say. And so that that whole piece to it, and that's where like private schools are different because if you're not effective or you, you know there are complaints, you get fired. In public schools, you stay in there. Um, what can be done to make sure that there's some sort of accountability? And I'm just on the teacher's point right now, but I'm going to get on to students afterwards. Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, and this one, boy, this one's a very complicated question. There's so many different aspects of this question that we can fare off to and talk about. Um, you know, just real quick, I mean, yeah, you're right. It, it is sometimes frustrating when when you see a teacher that's, that's getting there early and staying there late and working hard and, you know, has a great personality and gets the kids to love them and gets, learns about the kids and knows the kids, you know what I'm saying, and In that yeah, Dan, you're breaking up a little bit. Yeah, so it's like, why can't all teachers there be are. like that? You know, have that kind of connection with kids and work that hard. Sure. And, you know, and it would be great if all teachers were like that. Uh, you know, and then you look over and, you know, you, you, you 
here stood and saying, well, that teacher doesn't care, so why should we care? You know, and then it kind of breaks your heart a little bit because you see the kids kind of like throwing in the towel and not really trying. And, you know, and they're blaming it on the teacher not caring, so why should they care? And Boy, if we had that other teacher in that classroom, these kids would be all right. So, yeah, it kind of like, it kind of eats you up and you wonder, you know, what is the solution for that? You know, and then you and you got to also remember, though, you know, we've talked about the bell-shaped curve before, where you're going to have some all-stars uh, in, in every arena. You're going to have some low-performing ones, and then you're going to have a whole bunch of middle of the road. And I've kind of said to you before, I think there's a couple of secrets here. One, you know, we got we got to look at these all-stars, and we got to get these all-stars into other teachers' classrooms so that these all-stars can share. What they're, you know, what they know, with the other teachers, you know, in these other classrooms, we have to have some kind of system, I think, for that huge lump in the middle that are considered, let's say, your average people, mm-hmm. and have some kind of system for them because that, that's our biggest number right there. Have some kind of system for them that makes them more effective and more successful in their jobs. Now, I know a lot of the Asian countries they have a system like that that makes their teachers, you know, way more successful. And if those teachers came here, they would not be as successful here as they are presently over there. And now what I'm going to say next, Neil, is, is might shock you and it might shock a lot of people. And I've, I remember, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've had I, the same sort of thing with a gentleman who was a, a radio personality in Pittsburgh. I remember I was having this talk with him and he was shocked when I said this. But I said, here's the deal. When we've got, you know, those low-performing teachers, you know, it's our... It's our job to bring them along and, and to train them and give them BD and bring them along. Yeah. And if they are not developing, then it's, it's not just the administrator's job, but it's the administrators in conjunction with the unions to counsel this, this person, let's say, out of education and out of, to, let's say, a job that they may be more suited for. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, you'd be doing them a benefit. Get them into something that they're more suited for, counsel them in that direction. But they shouldn't be pushed along. I mean, if they're not effective, no, you know, it's like any job. Along. I, I agree with you. No, they should not be pushed along. They should be given an opportunity to improve. Okay. And if you see that they're not, they're how, not doing that, you know, they're not that. motivated, whatever, then at that point it's like, listen, you know, we'll give you an opportunity to improve. You're not, you're not taking the bull by the horns. You're not doing what we're asking you to do. It's, you know, it's obvious that this just isn't the place for you. Right, but how, uh, do, how do you measure improvement? Well, I think that, I, I think that you know, as administrators and, and even as the union, you know, and you, you, can, you can create, let's say as a union, you can create, like, let's say, a peer program where you have other teachers in that room you know, and, and again, according to the contract, it, you know, it's not supposed to be evaluative, but you can have teachers in the room trying to help them. You know what I'm saying? You can have administrators in that room trying to help them, and if you don't see them just taking some little steps, you know, let's say you're saying, okay, do this to improve your classroom management. You know what I'm saying? And they're not doing it. Okay, do this to improve your content. You know, they're not doing it. Do this to improve your pedagogy, you know, the, the art and the, the, skill, the science of teaching, and they're not doing it. You know, they just don't seem to be doing any of these things that you're trying to get them to do. Then at that point, you know, it's time to sit down, uh, you know, administration and the unions, and it's time to sit down and co-counsel them, you know, to something that they're better suited for. Not not everybody's suited to teach. 
you know, and, and, and the funny thing is, you know, some people say, well, well, let's say that woman's brilliant. Well, just because you're brilliant doesn't mean you're suited to teach. Right. You know, you might be better suited to teach in the colleges, you know what I'm saying, but you're not suited to teach here because, uh, you know, you're not making any connection with the students and they're not buying into what you're saying, mm-hmm. you know. So there, there's, you know, that sort of thing that we need to do. Um, you know, and there's, a, there's a whole bunch of other things. Um, and, of course, now going to Betsy DeVos, going to the, uh, the unions and charter schools and all that. Yeah, Dan, breaking up again. Hey, hey Dan, I, yep, you're back. Sorry, couldn't hear you there. What the unions are afraid of, that when you start running schools too much like a business, okay. then, then what happens is you have, let's say, some people that are at the very top that are trying to run it like a business, and you may have a great superintendent, you may have a great principal, assistant principal, great teachers that are trying to do the right things, but if they're, if they're not doing it, let's say, the way the person at the top wants it to be done, then there could be some, you know, repercussions for that. You know, they could be uh, put on the radar, they could be uh, disciplined, they could be written up, they could be sure. run out of their job. And that's one of the arguments that the union has is that, listen, the, the reason for teacher tenure was not to protect teachers. The reasons for teacher tenure was to actually have teachers be brave enough to protect their students. So if you bring in some kind of methodology, some kind of pedagogy, let's say, that's been perhaps tried in the past and wasn't effective, and, you know, the tenure was to give teachers the the bravery and the courage to say, hey, we've already tried that one, and that one didn't work. Perhaps we should should move forward with something different. Right. Now, you can't... You know what I'm saying? And what the unions and teachers are afraid of is that in these charter schools, these magnet schools, or these schools that are going to be run like a business, is that if they come forward and say that, then they may find themselves quickly out of a job. Mm-hmm. So at some point, they're going to keep their mouth shut, and they're not going to say anything. And, and like I said, you know, maybe you've got a great principal, a great superintendent, but they're answering to the people at top. Yeah. And if the people at top have, let's say, an agenda, or let's just say, you know, they don't know that this, this certain strategy was used before and didn't really work with this particular population. You know what I'm saying? Maybe they don't know that. Uh, and, and you can have teachers that are just going to shut them out, and they're not going to say anything. And in those situations, the students are going to lose out. Well, yeah. You and have that's to have a fine balance here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, that would just have an adverse effect. I mean, it's like the reason why I do this podcast and the show is to increase dialogue about certain topics. If there's no conversation, nothing gets done. Um, but at the same time, you know, there could be an all talk, no action um, effect that could go on. Just one thing about tenure, though, I guess the unintended consequence, it's not obviously the intention is to encourage people to speak up. The unintended consequence is that I guess especially in colleges that professors pretty much can say whatever the heck they want and get away with it. And, and that, that kind of goes back to yesterday's show that we had about indoctrination where we did that segment. But I do want to move on to students and student accountability because just as important as teachers being accountable, 
It's also about student accountability because um, a lot of times you're not being held to that higher standard. And, you know, when we're – I mean I don't know what the exact – but we're like 25th in math and we're behind all these countries. China is always up there in the top three. They're probably number one. And we're all the way down. The United States is down in math, science, and English. Um, not English. Uh, math, science, and, um, uh, and other subjects as well. Uh, but mainly math and science that we're doing so poor. And I don't understand why that is, but I guess you could go to student accountability that they're not pushed um, to be their very best in the classroom. Would that be a fair assessment? It definitely, you know, in, in some way, that definitely would be. Now, before I move forward with this, uh, this question, what I'd like to say is that our best students here in the United States can compete with any of the best students anywhere in the world. Right, I mean, but we've got is that like the top 5% awesome. though? Yeah, well, whatever it is, let's say the top 10% okay. of our students can compete with anybody in the world, and we do, and we do very, very well. Now, where we're falling down on the job is when we start moving down that spectrum. You know, saying, and, uh, you know, we can kind of throw, you know, now that 80-20 rule, mm -hmm. you know, 80% of the kids are going to do okay, and then let's say 20 of them are going to bomb and not do all right. You know, and I don't know if we want to use that number or if we want to use the 50-50 or top 50%, whatever, you know, they're hanging in there, but our bottom 50%, they're, they're not hanging in there. And then that's, that's where we're really, really getting hurt uh, on those uh, international tests is, like, let's say our bottom 50%, if you want to go with those numbers, or the bottom 20%, whatever numbers you want to go with. Yeah. Th those kids, sadly, you know, they're, they're not living up to their end of the deal. You know, they're provided, you know, they're provided uh, transportation to school. You know, they're provided teachers. Yeah. You know, the, most of them, most of the teachers are good teachers, you know. And they, they walk into those schools, and some of them, some of them are, are, are missing 30, 40, 50 days of school. And, and believe it or not, you know, you know they're, they're coming to you 55 days in, they've missed. And they're coming into you saying, I don't understand why you gave me an F in English. <laughs> and it's like, are, are you for real? Yeah. You've missed five days of school and you're asking me why you got an F? You know what's sad? That happens in college. <laughs> I've seen where you have students that cry over a grade, but they didn't do any work or they never showed up to class. Yes, that whole entitlement. Yes. Uh, it's just taken over. It's yeah. not, I mean, it's, it's in the, the K-12, it's in the college things. I'm yeah, they think they're entitled to move on. These kids are not working for it. Yeah. And we're seeing it at all levels. And, and again, and I'm not talking, Neil, I'm not talking about the kids that are working for it and the kids that are doing a great job. You know, I'm not talking about them. You know, it, it's obvious. I'm talking about those kids that are not working for it. They don't come to school. They come to school late every day. When they come to school... Uh, when they, they don't come with a pencil, they don't come with paper, they come in, they put their head down, and they fight you on, on mm. picking their head up. When you go by and you ask them to pick their head up, they get hostile to you. You know, tell, they yell at you to get out of their face, and this and that. And, and, some of and, them what, and what can teachers do about that? Well, at, at some point... Short of slapping you know, them. Especially <laughs> in the mainstream... And eventually, you know, they're going to be, you know, and at that point, you know, obviously you can see, go to the office, 
you know, it, it's kind of like a callous pan. They no longer feel the pain, mm. you know. So go to the office. Yeah, I don't care about going to the office. Stay for detention. I don't care about saying I'm not staying for detention. They just blow it off. Okay, now you got to come for a longer detention. They blow that off. So, okay, now you got to come for, like, uh, an in-school. You know, they blow that off or they, they can fire up the in-school suspension room all day long and make it unbearable in there. You know what I'm saying? Now you're going to have a Saturday detention. They blow that off. And I guess it doesn't matter because whatever they do, it's not like you're going to kick them out of the school. Yes, because you can't kick them out of school. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, you put them in, like, these, these programs. You may put them in special ed. Why not? You may put them in these special programs. But it, it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's similar there in some ways now. You know, they, they come in, and it's the same sort of behaviors, except now you've got, let's say, a smaller classroom. You may have a teacher that has, like, a... Uh, teacher assistant there or a paraprofessional there to help you and you're trying to you know motivate this kid you're trying to modify the work you know you're trying to do all these different things to get this kid to move a little bit and and some of them some of them still you know won't move and still won't come to school and you're you're spending get these kids to do the littlest things you know what I'm saying? And put, let's start by putting your name on the on your paper and opening your book. You know, let's start with looking at number one. You know, these are minor, minor things that elementary school kids can do. Yeah, and you I, got I think you fighting you on this. Yeah, I think and, you hit the nail on the head earlier with this entitled feeling, this you know mentality that, well, you know, you have to teach me, and, you know, it, it's one of those, it's not an active participation. Um, we've got a long time on this, and I'm definitely going to have you on again, because you really add a lot of value to this uh, program when we talk a lot about substance. And so I want to just end on this note. Um, how, it's a simplistic question, I've asked you this privately on the phone before, how can we change? What has to be done so that we can better educate our kids and have a better quality system that, you know, I think we have to incorporate some of uh, Betsy DeVos's um, uh, programs, and, I mean, that's going to come from the federal government, and that we, you know, we need some sort of uh, conservative values in there because I think it's gone too far left. But at the same time, we don't want to go in to swing the pendulum all the way right. Let's keep it you know, moderate in the center. Um, how do we go about that so that we change and we make the system best for our kids? I know it's a simplistic question and it's very intertwined, but I'll let you take a shot at it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there, and there's yeah. uh, and I and I agree with you, Neil, on that one. That maybe we shouldn't swing the pendulum too far in this one. Maybe start tweaking some of the things that we do. And so well, we do have to swing work, it, right? Uh, you know, I think that you know, first of all, we need to get our kids to work harder. You know, we need to get them to appreciate hard work. Maybe we need to start applauding, appraising and their their effort and start putting effort over grades or, like, little stickers on the paper and <laughs> shiny things. Yeah, the A for effort to, crap. It, yeah, yeah, we need to get kids to believe that effort. Effort is where it's at. Effort is where it works. You know what I'm saying? And then once we can get the kids moving, I mean, some somebody even wrote a book on it before, you know, never work hard and you're still and I'm seeing this all the time. I'm seeing teachers working hard and your students all the time. Mm -hmm. So we, we need to get those students working hard. We need to get rid of that sense of entitlement and, and, and start you know, let, making them work for it. They have to work for it. You know, and then I think that you know, teachers should be the same boat as that. You know, teachers should be expected to work hard and constantly be improving their craft. I think teachers 
should be demonstrating and be the example of lifelong learners. Yeah, Dan, you still there? Yeah. It's going to be able to, uh, students are not going to be able to survive on the education they received um, at age 18 when they finished high school Correct. or age 22 when they finished college. Students are going to have to be lifelong learners, and I think that the uh, teachers, you know, are going to are, need to set that example of being lifelong learners themselves. And, you know, and I know the teachers and the unions are very nervous about Betsy DeVos. Uh, I'm praying that, that us teachers and our unions are wrong about Betsy DeVos. I'm praying that some of the things that she's going to bring are going to um, complement uh, our, our education. Mm -hmm. And, and make it so that we can educate the child better, you know, and I'm praying that she's going to get help, uh, you know, and, and, and learn more about the public education and make the public education better. And I know that she wants to provide choice and all those other things, and I'm hoping that those things complement the public education and make uh, education, you know, better for everybody moving forward. You know, sometimes I guess a little shake-up is good. Yeah. You know, and so maybe, maybe in some ways this could be good. Um, and, and let's, let's, let's hope that unions and teachers, let's hope that they're wrong uh, with their fears about I, Betsy DeVos, that she's going to help. I'm glad that you're level-headed about it because I think uh, there needs to be some civility and that we just have to give people a chance like our president um, you know, until uh, they do something. Otherwise, I know a lot of people freak out about um, things that aren't well reporter, reported, to be honest with you. And um, I think people just have to be level-headed and, and try to read – um, and educate themselves. I mean, a lot of it is throughout life. You got to stay educated. You have to read and know where you're getting your sources from and all of that. But um, I don't want to uh, go too too long with you. But we will have you on again. I mean, uh, I th I think you hit it on the head. Hard work, and I always say hard work always pays off. So you know, maybe you you teach lessons in the classroom that um, then show lessons of hard work. Maybe uh, use an example of of somebody who worked very hard to get to where they are and you know I think sometimes success has been um, vilified um, whether it's the media whether it's um, uh, culture today I think um, success sometimes you, you some people just think that uh, you wake up and you're successful and it's not the case it's always um, hard work and it's always uh, it's always effort but um, Daniel Blanchard uh, inner city school teacher Connecticut um, you could go on to danielblanchard.net, granddaddysecrets.com. Um, thanks so much for spending time. We've got about an hour on the interview, so um, thanks for taking a little time on your Monday evening, and uh, we'll definitely talk to you soon, all right? We'll be in touch. You're welcome now, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Sounds good. Same here. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Good night. Um, Daniel Blanchard on the Neil A. Curso Show podcast. All right, that wraps up the Monday podcast, folks. Uh, tomorrow, Valentine's Day, we'll be with you. We love you, folks. We'll be with you tomorrow night. Um, regular podcast, no guests tomorrow. Not that I know of as of now. So we'll get you all the, the latest that you should know. Maybe you tell your Valentine tomorrow night over dinner what you should know, what the president is doing. How we are making America great again, greater than ever before. That's right. We are. Big League, America first. 
Uh, Wednesday, we'll have Professor Michael Rechtenwald from NYU on to talk about college campus craziness and indoctrination. We'll get into that on the podcast. And then Thursday, uh, we'll have a U.S. Army combat veteran on the program. So you don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Neil A. Crusoe Show podcast every day, Monday through Friday, on iTunes and on NeilACaruso.com. Have a good night, everybody. We'll talk to you on Valentine's Day.